Thanks, Ruth. Good morning or good afternoon or whatever you're, whatever, however you're watching, wherever you're watching. Uh, I want to give you my special welcome this morning. And uh, this morning we're continuing on uh, through this book of James. Uh, before I do start, we're going to have a look at the verses that uh, Ruth has read for us. I've got to say, over the last week or two, I've had a number of conversations with people. And I'm hearing a lot of people just say, you know what, they're feeling disconnected. Maybe disconnected to God, maybe disconnected to church, to God's word. If you're feeling like that, because of these times, uh, we just want to say we're here for you, we're aware, we're, we're praying. Get in touch. If you haven't got in touch, get in touch with us. We'd love to encourage. I hope you're encouraged this morning uh, by these uh, words from James and by the live worship and even by the news that Ian just shared with us. Uh, we are continuing through the book of James. We're looking at chapter 4, and it is a letter written to churches. And as we think about churches, it makes, you know, I think about this and I think about what James says to the church. It sort of makes you wonder, how is church meant to be? In the ultimate, what is church meant to be like? You know, I think of, it's a group of people that all come together. We worship God. Uh, you know, we grow in our faith. We, we go out, we do mission together. We bring the gospel to the world. You know, we love people. It's not a place of conflict, I've been talking to some friends who are new to church, and their idea was people who go to church, they don't argue with each other, don't, they, don't, you know, they don't have conflict. But as we look through this, this bit from James 4 this morning, we're going to talk about conflict. It was an issue for James. Now, this was written maybe 60 years after the birth of Jesus. The, the people that were in James's churches, uh, James's church in Jerusalem, the people that were, you know, these new Christians, uh, these new churches, these are first-generation Christians. They had issues and conflicts in their church. And uh, as much as that was an issue for them, even then, in that first generation, it's an issue for us. We have conflicts at Fig Tree. We're not immune to that. We have our stuff. You know, if you've been around, you've seen it. Big ones, small ones. Maybe, you know, just saying this brings up some stuff. We have conflict. And so we're going to look at what does James say about conflict? So I'm going to pray for us as we look at God's word this morning is to read through James that God's going to speak to us. So pray with me wherever you are. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning, Father, we ask that your word would speak to us and we just pray wherever we're at, however we're feeling, however connected, disconnected, wherever we are, um, would your word bring encouragement to us this morning. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Last week, uh, Ian uh, took us through chapter 3 uh, and the end of chapter 3, and this passage we're looking at is a continuation of that. Ian spoke of two different types of wisdom uh, that, come, that James comes through. Wisdom is a big theme in James. And Ian shared with us from James about this type of godly wisdom, and we saw that in uh, chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. This wisdom that comes down from heaven is, first of all, pure peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. There's this idea of God's wisdom, and we even said that in chapter 1 of James, that God gives wisdom. And this wisdom is seeing God's will, is seeing God's perspective from God's point of view. And God wants to give that to believers as a gift, uh, freely given, given without fault. He wants us to understand his purposes and plans. That's how godly wisdom should play it for Christians and should play it into the church. 
But there's this battle that goes on because there's a battle against worldly wisdom. And worldly wisdom is the values, the, the things that the world holds value to. And that wisdom plays into the church, and this is the battle. Uh, and its thing comes out, as we've seen through James, things like favoritism, boasting, selfish ambition. Uh, in chapter 3, verse you know, 15 and 16, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And for where there is you have envy and selfish ambition, there you'll find disorder and every evil practice. So we've got these two types of wisdom. And as we look through uh, James uh, 4, 1 to 10, we're gonna, James is going to explain how this worldly wisdom is playing out into the church. So let's go. He starts. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? What causes these fights? It's a bit of a, a question that James is going to answer. And he says it starts with desires. Now, I don't know if he's talking about every quarrel ever, but the ones that he's talking about, they start with these desires. The word desires is the word, uh, Greek word hedone, uh, like the word hedonistic. And it means when we grab onto passions, uh, pleasures, anything we desire for pleasure, we grab onto that and it drives us. These fights and quarrels arise from these these. these desires within us and sometimes these desires are really bad things you know they might for us as a church say you know we want to be the best of all the other churches the biggest the you know the absolute ultimate church in every way Uh, but that can play out uh, in just awful ways you know sometimes uh, those bad desires might be things like you know I look at the example of David and Bathsheba David's a good guy but he sees Bathsheba having a bath and he this lust rises up in him and he does everything he can uh, to, get, to get to be with Bathsheba, the bad desires. But we can also have these good desires that might seem good. You know, we want people to come to church. We want uh, things to get done a certain way, you know. And we have these are the desires that we have in us, but they play out uh, in all these ways. And often there's something behind these desires. James goes on in verse 2. You desire, but you do not have. So you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. These desires that battle up within us start causing conflicts. And it and James says, you know, it results in fighting and killing. And I, I hope that hasn't happened, maybe not literal killing yet uh, with us, uh, but it does happen around the world. And, you know, I think of a great example is the Pharisees. When Jesus is rocking around, you know, Jesus is saying, this, God's got a new way, you know, and salvation is through me and I'm the fulfillment. And the Pharisees are like, no, that doesn't fit in with our wisdom. So what's their, what's their result? They try to kill Jesus and, and, they, and they do that you know these desires popping out and one of the things that causes that is that uh, we often when we get these desires and things we want to see happen we lose our peace and it becomes that we only have inner peace if we get what we want our inner peace depends on getting what our desires want instead of saying our peace comes from our relationship with Jesus and what he's done for us, our peace becomes reliant on getting our desires met, which then results in we push people out of the way, we uh, do whatever we can to get what we want. 
It's a bit different when Jesus says in, in Matthew's gospel, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be given to you as well. We go, no, no, I, I've got to get what I want. I've got to get what I want. He says in, in verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motive so that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. If we do ask to get our desires met, James is saying here, what you really want is, is just to satisfy yourself. Sometimes we have these desires that play into our church life that are really all about uh, our, our own self-rewards. It could be things like, you know, just the satisfaction of being right or having the power uh, or things that aren't, you know, in my own, our own self-interests or my own self-interests, not in interests of the community. And, uh, you know, we read this passage and we go, well, hold on, does that mean we shouldn't have conflict? In the church? Does that mean sh conflicts shouldn't happen? And even as we look in the world, you know, we see Christians uh, involved in, in, in uh, trying to, br you know, bring up conflicts uh, that, that uh, they'll stop being injustice in the world. We see that in the US at the moment. Should Christians not be involved in conflict? Let me say clearly, conflict is a part of life. If we're in a community, we're different. We're people. There's going to be conflict. In fact, it's really important we do deal with our conflict. Conflict is really important. So we're not saying here, be conflict avoiders. But what we are saying is, as we have that conflict, our peace can't rely on winning and getting... Uh, our peace can't rely on uh, dealing with that conflict, uh, having our conflicts uh, win the argument. Our peace has got to rely on our relationship with Jesus, which is a contrast. That's godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says you must win the conflict at all costs. You must get your way no matter what. God's wisdom says we seek first him. Uh, how do we do that? How do we seek God's wisdom when we feel conflict coming? And I'll give us an example of this in a second. But you know, if I feel a conflict coming, I've got a desire, it's not being met. Instead of rushing off to that person and having that argument and bringing up that conflict... Do I actually start by praying? Do I actually start by seeking God first? Do I examine my own motivations? Do I seek God? Do I come to God's word first and say, is this what I desire? Is this your desire as well? Am I trusting in God's will or am I trusting in my own? Again, James 3.17 says, The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. It's hard to seek God's wisdom. I'll give you an example. I'll put, put this all together. Imagine I get a desire in my head, and my desire is, I think we should have an elephant in the auditorium. I think it would be so awesome if we had an elephant in the auditorium because it would give, uh, you know, just give glory to God. People would you know, be excited. They'd come to church. You know, and I go, it's just the best idea ever. And the more I think about it, the more excited I get. And so I don't even ask anyone. I just bring an elephant to ch church. And then you know, uh, Joe Brain comes up to me, Langdon, I don't know about this whole elephant thing. And she says, get it away. And I say, no, Joe, it's really important. We have an elephant in the church. You know? and, then I, and, and then you know, Greg comes along and then Ian comes along and I disagree with them, I cause a fight, you know, I call the archbishop. 
bishop, it's really important to have an elephant in the church. I push it and push it because I'm convinced, even if no one else is, having an elephant in the church is the most important thing. Now, that can come from a good desire. Somewhere in my brain, I think if there's an elephant in the church, people will love God more. People will give their lives to Christ even more. That might be a good thing. But what I haven't done is I haven't sought God's wisdom. I haven't spent time going, God, do you think it's good to have an elephant in the church? Do you think it's, do you think it's something we should do? I haven't spent time seeking God's wisdom on it. I haven't spent time seeking God's wisdom on saying to God, you know, if this is a good idea, give unity and agreement. Uh, help others to get that. And you know what, God, if it's not a good idea, my peace doesn't depend on it. I'm still at peace through what you've done for me on the cross. It's a silly example, and our conflicts are often much more complex than that. Much more complex than that. But here's James' big thing. I think what James is saying here, his big issue is that what we're doing as a church is we're letting worldly wisdom come into the church. And that is, when we do that, it's going to play out in all sorts of conflicts. And this is what he's talking about. And when that happens, it breaks our relationship with God. But it also breaks our relationship with each other because these conflicts that I'm having, trying to get my desires met, are going to cause conflict with each other. I'm going to annoy other people because what I think is more important is what I'm trying to get. Instead of seeking, what does God want? What does the community want? Unity is the most important thing. Uh, and Jesus thought this in John 17, b I love this. Jesus even prays, Father, protect them by the power of your holy name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. When we go after our desires, it causes that disunity. It causes that conflict. And Jesus saw that unity was one of the most uh, important things. That lack of unity is one of the biggest tools of the devil. It's a huge thing, this battle of letting worldly wisdom in to a, to a Christian community that is meant to be, uh, is meant to be surrounded and uh, enveloped by God's wisdom. So he goes on uh, in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? This is pretty full on from James. He's saying, you adulterous people. What does he mean there? Uh, often in the Old Testament, this idea of uh, adultery uh, is used by God uh, in spiritual sense. What happens when someone commits adultery? It's the worst thing. When two people are in a covenant marriage relationship with each other, and then one person breaks that, goes off with someone else. It's, the, it's hurtful, it's painful, it's the worst possible thing. And God's saying, you know, when my people who are in a relationship with me break, break that covenant, they go off and they worship other gods before me, it's like it's adultery. That's what James is saying. You know, when you go off and you embrace the world's wisdom, it's spiritual adultery. James is using very strong words. He goes on, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? By embracing the world's wisdom, 
Uh, the word for world there is cosmos, and it means the world's values. So by going off and embracing the values of the world, it makes us enemies with God. Now, if you look at this passage out of context, you sort of go, hold on, should I not be friends with the world? Isn't that weird because Jesus was friends with sinners? That's not what this is saying. It's saying you as a body of believers are embracing worldly values, worldly traditions, worldly wisdom. Don't go and do that because it makes us enemies against God. It's a warning from James. You may not realize you're doing it. You might realize that you're embracing the world's wisdom, but it breaks relationship. Isaiah 59.2 says, Our iniquities, they separate us from God. Uh, you know, in verse 5, uh, James says, Do you think the scriptures say without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? God is a jealous God. When, you know, one in a marriage relationship, when one partner runs off with, a, with somebody else, there's a, there's a jealousy. How, how, how can they do that? It's the same with God. God redeemed us by sending the Lord Jesus to bring us into a relationship with him. He loves that relationship. He jealously longs for us. Exodus 34, 14 says, Don't worship any other God. The Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And that's what embracing the worldly wisdom does. But God's good. In verse 6 he says, He gives us more grace. This is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. It's a quote from Proverbs. God gives us the grace to live by his wisdom. Again, we can ask God for that wisdom. And he wants to give us that grace. No matter how much we've embraced worldly wisdom, God wants to give us that grace. Uh, he says in Corinthians, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. If we're recognizing that we're living by this worldly wisdom, is an invitation for us to humble ourselves and go, I recognize I'm doing that and I want to embrace again God's wisdom. And can I say, being humble is really hard. It's a difficult thing. Especially when world's wisdom says, you know what, you're better than that other person. Your opinion is more important. You deserve better than that. When all the world says that to us, for us to be humble and say, I'm going to put my trust in God to get, uh, for him to, to take on uh, those things instead of putting my trust in myself and causing conflict to get what I want. As I've examined this passage this week, it's actually really blown my mind because it makes me go, this is not a passage just about conflicts in the church. This is about saying from here on in, I live my life seeking God's wisdom in every aspect of my life. And that means that in every decision, everything I do, in my family, my fr every part of my life, it makes me ask, am I actually seeking what God wants in every way? Am I seeking God's wisdom or am I living it for myself? It's really all, all accompanying and it's a whole new way of life. These last verses, James leads us through, maybe it's like a little recipe, how to repent, how to embrace again God's wisdom. He says, verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It starts with submission to God. That's the Christian way. And there's a recognition here of 
embracing God's wisdom, uh, the devil's against it. Satan's against it. Satan is opposing anything that's going to bring us connected to God. And he wants to create anything that's going to disconnect us. And often the devil will start with temptation. Uh, It reminds me of uh, the story of uh, Peter and Jesus. Peter heard that when Jesus told Peter that he was going to be killed and on the third day rise again, Peter thought, in my wisdom, Jesus, this is not the way to build your kingdom. Don't go to the cross. And he says, uh, you know, to Jesus, you know, uh, you know, don't do this. He rebukes Jesus. But what does Jesus say? Pretty sternly, he says, get behind me, Satan. Pretty sternly, get behind me. He says that to Peter because maybe, it was a, maybe Peter even offered a temptation to Jesus, but Jesus, he recognized Satan's work in recognizing a different way of wisdom. Jesus was embracing God's way. This is God's wisdom. This may not make sense to the world, but this is what I have to do. And we need to recognize that Satan is against us. He loves to pick, take those desires in our hearts, those things that can bring conflict and bring those out. We need to be seeking God's wisdom that he doesn't do that. Verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. You know, we can come near to God because he comes close to us. He loves us so much. And he says, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. He uses this temple imagery. I don't know if you've ever been to a cathedral or uh, a temple or something like that, and you would come in. This is what happened in the Old Testament. You'd come into the temple, you'd wash your hands first. There's a sense of you come in, you wash your hands, you know, and we're used to doing that, aren't we, with the hand sanitizers and stuff. But this is in a spiritual sense, a way of going, I'm cleaning myself because I'm coming before a holy God. Come before God. Wash your hands. Purify yourselves. Come with a clean heart. You know, often when we recognize there's areas in our life of sin uh, and we can say, I'm going to work as hard as I can to deal with that sin with all my strength. I'm going to resist temptation with all I can. But the most important thing is coming back to our relationship with God. Coming to that relationship with God first. Coming near deeply with God and then doing the work uh, of, of, of resisting that sin. Because it's that relationship with God, knowing God's deep love and grace, gives us the strength to deal with that sin. He calls them double-minded because he says, you can't have too much. You can't have the worldly wisdom and uh, the godly wisdom as well. And then he says, grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. If you're classier than me, then you weren't watching Big Brother this week. But I saw a great illustration on Big Brother this week uh, for this, this idea of grieving. Uh, The Old Testament prophet Joel uh, would use this idea of grieving as sudden understanding of lack of wisdom. Uh, There was this guy uh, on Big Brother this week called Alan, and if you watched uh, he was really arrogant and he was full of worldly wisdom. But he would come on and say, I'm the winner, I'm the best, I'm going to win this. He gets, he gets nominated to be evicted with a couple of other people and he's not even worried about it. I'm the winner, I'm the best, it doesn't matter. And when they read the votes, there's like 14 votes altogether of who gets evicted. One of the people gets one vote. The second person gets one vote. And you see Alan's face. When he realizes, I've done the wrong thing. I've totally messed up. I've followed my own wisdom. I was totally wrong. This grief that comes over him, 
This is what James is talking about here. This grief of understanding. I've been following worldly wisdom. He's saying you need to grieve it. You need to let it go. You need to feel that shock. Mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Come into that space of recognizing we've been embracing worldly wisdom. And he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. God will forgive us if we've been embracing worldly wisdom. He asks us to come fully open towards him. He asks us to come seeking him, not for how we want him to be or how worldly wisdom says God is, but he wants us to come to him to humble ourselves and he will take care of it. He will take care of us. At first reading, when you see this passage, it might seem like a pretty harsh passage. But this is James warning to the church. And you can see how full on James is about this. This letting worldly wisdom into the church. And he invites this humility in us. He invites us to be humble, to, to bring us back so we to seek God's wisdom so that we don't let God's wisdom be part of the church. Jesus modeled this humility for us. Let me read these amazing words from Philippians. Jesus, from uh, chapter 2, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in his appearances as a man, He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've talked about conflicts this morning. As we've thought about this, Is there conflicts that we've had that we need to go back to God and humble ourselves and say, I was trusting in worldly wisdom, not your wisdom. Do we need to seek God's forgiveness? Do we need to do more work in empathizing where the other person was at, where other people are at? Do we need to apologize? Do we need to make peace? Do we need to pray for each other that we're all going to seek God's wisdom? Do we need to make a decision today that when conflict comes up, rather than rushing into it trying to get our own way, we're going to seek first God's wisdom? We're going to trust that whether we get our way or we don't, that we're not going to have our peace reliant on winning that argument, but our peace, we're going to recognize our peace comes from God. It's hard work. Are we going to come to terms with God's God's peace first? It's also a big question for us as a church. What are the ways that we're letting worldly wisdom into our church? These are the questions we've got to keep asking. What are the ways we're letting worldly wisdom into our lives? How do we let God's wisdom embrace everything we do? How do we let God's wisdom permeate who we are? God invites us to do that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can look through James this morning, chapter 4. It's a full-on passage. Father, we ask for your Spirit to help us 
not rely on worldly wisdom. Show us where we're doing that. And be gracious to ask, Lord. Be gracious, Lord, that we can live by godly wisdom. We can seek your wisdom and know the fruit of that in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.